Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast, where my co-host Sam Moyne and I, David Schleicher, uh, talk about legal theory and uh, whatever else is on our minds. Um, so Sam, what do you think about the Erie Doctrine? Dave, I have, to be completely honest, not thought about it. And I did not know when I signed up to do this podcast with you that I was going to be re-traumatized in this way. But it's, it's going to be a fun, a, a, a fun, uh, a fun pain. So today's episode is uh, is, uh, is is a real humdinger. It's going to be uh, should be should be uh, mandatory mandatory listening for all civil procedure students. We have with us um, Steve Sachs and Ernie Young, both from Duke Law School, uh, debating whether the classic Supreme Court decision Erie Railroad versus Tompkins should be reversed. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on to your hats. <laughs> Hold on to your hats, people. This <laughs> Sit down. Is, get a cool drink. Get a cool drink. This is it's going to be a real humdinger. So uh, uh, get ready. Hold on. We're coming. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. Uh, for those of you who are lawyers in our audience, which I have to assume is most of you, um, you probably remember learning about uh, Erie Railroad versus Tompkins in your first semester of law school in your procedure classes. One of the most, one of the Supreme Court's uh, most famous decisions. Uh, and uh, just so we're all on the same page about it, the Rules of Decision Act holds that the laws of the several states shall be regarded as rules of decision in civil actions. And in a case called Swift versus Tyson, the Supreme Court had held that the laws of the several states only include their statutory rules and not the decisions of their of their state supreme courts. Um, uh, the um, the um, generally uh, the um, the uh, effect of this was to allow federal courts to uh, interpret, find, uh, create. Uh, a, a doctrine of federal common law to decide cases that when the federal courts sit in diversity. In Erie, the court reversed Swift versus Tyson um, and held that federal district courts in diversity cases must apply the entire law of the states, including not just their statutory rules, but their judicial doctrine, um, and found that there was no general federal common law. Um, and if you remember how Erie was presented in law school, it was probably presented as a step out of the darkness and into the light. This was considered one of the kind of a foundational decision of modern American law. But in recent years, particularly for those of you who haven't gone, didn't go to law school in the last 35 seconds, um, uh, there's been a major pushback on Erie, uh, that there uh, has been a, a group of scholars of a variety of stripes saying that Erie, there's something wrong with the Erie doctrine. Um, and so today, what we thought we'd have is a debate between one of the leading critics of Erie, um, uh, Steve Sachs and one of its um, leading defenders in Ernie Young. So to get us started on this debate, I'm going to uh, do this. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready for, for a debate over the Erie Doctrine? In one corner, we've got Ernie the Federalist Young, who's a scholar of constitutional law of federalism and has been known to dabble in maritime law and comparative constitutional law. In the other corner, we've got Steve, the brooding omnipresent Sachs, uh, who is a leading scholar of, uh, of jurisdiction, civil procedure, constitutional law, and Anglo-American history. <laughs> I will crush him. <laughs> 
Um, we had an early coin toss before the before the show started, and we're going to let Steve uh, lead us off with why the Erie Doctrine was why not the Erie Doctrine, but the Erie the case was wrongly decided. Without further ado, Steve Sachs. So thanks very much to uh, all of you, and um, you know th- this this may be more confrontational in presentation than actually is, because I think Ernie and I actually agree on a lot of the important parts. But on the stuff we disagree about, um, you know, I think that Erie is, uh, as they said of Lord Byron, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Uh, it is a terribly wrong decision and has completely distorted the course of American law. Um, so why? So for a bunch of reasons. Two of the three reasons I'm actually not going to say much about. Um, I think Erie misread the Rules of Decision Act, and I think its worries about forum shopping uh, are all messed up. And you can read more about that in a great article by Caleb Nelson, a critical review of Erie v. Tompkins. Um, and I'm happy to say more about it later. The part that I'm most worried about Erie is its rejection of general law, which is actually a really important part of America's federal structure. And what Erie has done has is it's left a general law-shaped hole in the middle of the American legal system that courts are doing increasingly strange things to try to fill. So um, what is general law and why did we need it? So if you think about something like getting together for a group of uh, people playing poker, um, they're going to be applying some rules that weren't necessarily laid down by any particular official body at some prior time. So if you're trying to figure out, does two pair beat three of a kind? There's an answer to that, but it's a customary answer. It's something that the people who play poker would know. And you can look it up on Google or in Hoyle or anywhere else, but there's no official poker body that made it so. It's just the nature of the game that the people who play it know. Now, it's also possible when you go over to a friend's house to play poker that there will be some local house rules that you're expected to follow that their house that also weren't necessarily enacted through any special process, but are just the local rules around here. There might be rules for a particular game that you agree on, like which cards are wild or something like that. And if the legal system had to deal with those things, if there were like a Texas statute that said that certain kinds of disputes should be settled by a game of poker, which almost certainly there is such a statute, Um, then a court would just have to figure out, well, what's poker? Um, You know, we'd look to the general rule of what poker is. Now, maybe when Texas enacts that statute, they really mean poker asterisk. They really mean their own special version of poker. And that's something that we might listen to the Texas courts about. If we're trying to read a Texas statute, they might know it better than we do but they wouldn't necessarily know poker the game any better than we do. And so if we get a crazy Texas trial court opinion saying that uh, three of a kind is beaten by two pair, a federal court wouldn't have to follow it. Um, That's what was going on in Swift v. Tyson. Um, There, the court had determined that the issue of whether a, a bill of exchange was valid was a question of initially of New York law, but that New York had incorporated the common law and was using the same general rules everyone else was. There was no specific local customer usage like a house rule. There was no statute on point. And so they just followed the general practice, even if some New York trial courts had gotten it wrong. Um, So that's why I have a a bumper sticker. I believe Swift v. Tyson was rightly decided and I vote. And I encourage you to do the same. Um, So when we get to Erie, you have a question of the tort law of Pennsylvania. You know, is this uh, person who Brian Fry has told us was probably lying about how he got injured by the drain? But, you know, was he a trespasser or not? 
Um, and the way you would figure that out would in part be by the general law, unless there was some special Pennsylvania law on point. The fact that the Pennsylvania courts had generally gone the other way wouldn't answer the issue. What you need to know is why they went the other way, whether they went the other way because they were doing something different and unusual, or whether they were just trying to follow the general rule and failing. Okay, so why does this matter other than just you know, uh, a few random cases on bills of exchange and railroads. So not having the general law as a tool really distorts the federal system because it forces courts to squirrel rules of general law that are necessary to the system's operation into textual provisions that they never actually belong to. So questions of choice of law, in which cases do the laws of the several states apply? Well, that's something that would have been determined by general law, but now we have to find it somewhere in the full faith and credit clause or the due process clause or the dormant commerce clause, or we leave it up to state laws. Um, so the states can just make their own law applicable, even if it uh, shouldn't have been. What do we do for personal jurisdiction? That used to be a topic in general law. Now we squirrel all the substantive standards into the due process clause. So if you just stare at it for long enough, hopefully jurisdictional standards will fall out. Um, on things that are very specific to the federal powers, things like the power of congressional subpoenas, that seems sort of customary. There's nothing really in the Constitution that spells it out. But now courts force themselves to do uh, gymnastics and try and find it somewhere in the text rather than just saying, well, what's the traditional general rule that's been in place since the founding? Or something like stare decisis. People will try and derive it from the judicial power when it was really just a rule of general law that uh, you know had never been abrogated. And maybe Congress couldn't even abrogate if they wanted to. And finally, having no general law really distorts the role of judges. So it tells us in certain areas that we should create a new category called federal common law on which you guys you know, can't see the scare quotes that I'm adding with fingers, um, that uh, ju federal judges are just authorized to make up as they choose. And it tells state judges that your job, the common law method, is to derive new rules to meet the changing society, as opposed to try and figure out how the old rules apply to new facts. I think both of those are dangerous trends that increase judicial power at the expense of the legislature. And I think all of them flow from the horrible, misguided errors of Erie. Ernie Young, was Erie the terrible, no good, very bad case? Erie was a very good day for the American judicial system. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. My kids and I are both big fans of the book, Sam and Dave Dig a Hole. Um, and I hope we don't miss the big hidden gems um, in discussing Erie. So it's always fun to appear with Steve, but I do have this vision where Steve is out wandering about, shooting down particular aspects of Erie, insulting the earth where they grew, as he likes to say, when a blinding light knocks him down and out of the light, the spirit of Erie calls out, Steve, Steve, why do you persecute me? And I think Steve's writing suggests the answer is because judges can find law rather than make it, right? But I don't think that's a good enough reason to support Steve's assault on Erie because Erie doesn't depend on whether judges make law or find it. And it doesn't depend on whether it, there is such a thing as general law or not. It depends on whether state law is separate from federal law or from general law. Brandeis said that Swift v. Tyson had rested on an invalid assumption that there is a transcendental body of law outside of any particular state, but obligatory within it. That's actually an incorrect description of Swift, I think, but an accurate description of what Swift's general common law had become by the end of the 19th century. Note that Brandeis isn't denying that there could be a body of law outside of any particular state that judges can find. He's not denying the existence of general law. He's simply denying 
that that law is obligatory on the states. He's saying that there is general law, but there is also state law. And if a state wants to depart from the general law, then the federal courts have no power to ignore state law in diversity cases. In fact, as, as Steve's acknowledged, Erie depends on judges being able to find the law. That, in fact, is what they have to do in diversity cases. They have to find state law and apply it to the case. What they can't do is find some other kind of law, either general or federal, that the state hasn't adopted. They also can't disagree with the state's highest court about what state law is to be found or make law of any kind that wasn't there before, except possibly on questions of federal procedure that fall outside Erie's scope. So these propositions don't come from jurisprudence. They come from basic structural principles of federalism and separation of powers. The federalism point is that federal law can only be made in a particular way, set forth in Article I of the Constitution. That means that not only does it an issue like the duty of care owed by a railroad to people walking along the right-of-way have to fall within one of Congress's enumerated powers, which it surely does, but Congress actually has to act through a difficult legislative process that gives the state's representatives a say. In that way, separation of powers gives an assist to federalism. Because separation of powers makes it difficult to enact federal laws, that means that state law will remain in force in many important areas, like most torts. So this is the judicial federalism account of Erie. And to repeat, nothing in it depends on assumptions about whether courts find or make law. What it does mean is that unless you can point to a pre-existing federal statute or a constitutional provision, there's simply no federal law to be found. Now, I think the reason Professor Sachs thinks Erie is wrong is that the general law recognized in Swift could still have governed the case. But as Brandeis pointed out, the general law is not a mystic overlaw that's obligatory within the states. In the early 19th century, all states had decided that they wanted general law to govern commercial cases, hence Swift v. Tyson. But that agreement never extended to areas like torts. Nonetheless, by the end of the 19th century, the federal courts had decided to impose general law in diversity cases involving a wide range of subjects, even where the states wanted to do their own thing. The modest and narrow general law of Swift had become a mystic overlaw, and that's what Erie held unconstitutional. So I would agree that general law still exists out there and can play an important role. For instance, I argued some years ago that we should treat customary international law, which a lot of people have debated to the death, whether it's federal or whether it's state, but we should treat it as general law, and it should be available to apply in cases where there was no relevant federal law or no relevant state law, such as international human rights cases arising abroad. You could also apply it where there wasn't state law apply, for instance, in state versus state boundary cases, which, which Steve has argued very persuasively it should apply in. Um, Congress could direct that, state, that general law should apply in cases where that would be helpful. It could amend the Federal Tort Claims Act and say that the tort obligations of, of federal officers will be governed by general law rather than, than state law. Um, Congress could legislate state or federal choice of law rules if it likes. All these things are within Congress's power. I think our, our question is, our disagreement is about whether it would take a statute to do that. I um, mean, I also think that, that Steve is right that um, there's way too much federal common law. I'm not sure you can lay this at Erie's door. I think, in effect, there was more federal common law before. Um, but I would bow to no one in my disdain for federal common law. Um, but to go back to Erie, I think Steve thinks that in 1938, the state of Pennsylvania still wanted to have general law govern its tort cases. And that's why it's wrong. And if that's true, then I would agree that that would have been constitutional and Erie would have been wrong as applied to that scenario. 
On the other hand, I don't think Steve disagrees that if Pennsylvania had decided to have its own distinctive tort law by 1938, the federal courts would have been obliged to follow it, to find Pennsylvania law, not general law, and certainly not just federal law. So I think our disagreement is really just a lawyer's disagreement about the content of Pennsylvania law in 1938. And if that's true, it's not much of a fight. And there's no reason any of you would want to listen to it. After all, neither one of us is an expert on Pennsylvania tort law in the 1930s. And it's certainly not much of an answer to offer to the spirit of Erie about why you want to eradicate the decision from the face of the earth and salt the earth where it stood. It's also not a reason to abandon Erie today when it's surely true that states generally understand the law implied in diversity cases on most subjects is their own law. And given the general decline of most other limits on the expansion of federal law, I think we should be nourishing and preserving Erie rather than salting its earth. All right. So you all will remember that in, in A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise accuses Demi Moore of missing the day that they taught law in law school. I actually did. And so I'm going to force you to slow, like really way down um, with at least a first question, just so I can understand. I mean, it seems like you have very different, you know, beliefs about what, what you're actually debating. Um, Ernie, you've written that Erie, it, it vindicates positivism. Uh, I, I, I guess what I don't get in, in that claim is that it, it definitely vindicates a version of federalism, but it seems like it's about deferring to whatever state courts are doing. Uh, and maybe they're working with general law. So if, if that's true, Steve, isn't it really a decision about what judges get to determine the content of the general law and who defers to whom? Uh, so could we start there? Is that is is it could 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 you explain whether positivism's at stake and whether general laws at stake or who controls it, at least in in some instances? So I don't think Erie depends on positivism or that positivism you know, mandates Erie in any kind of direct way. There's been a lot of good writing about that that I think is very persuasive. Um, Story was an early adopter of positivism. Right. Um, but I think what positivism required was a finding that the relevant legal community, the state of New York, had decided upon a choice of law rule, which was that we would follow the general common law in commercial cases, at least, rather than you know, any idiosyncratic state law that we might want to create. And Story goes out of his way to say, you know, the New York courts agree with us that this is a general law question, not a, not a federal law question. Um, I do think that by the end of the 19th century, general law had become a little less positivist. So you had actually cases where federal courts sitting in diversity refused even to apply state statutes because they just thought they went so contrary to the understanding of how, you know, contract law works, that the state legislature had skipped the day that they taught law in law school and the federal courts were going to apply the right answer. Um, and in that, you know, th at that point, there's not a dime's worth of difference between a case like that and a case like Lochner that says the due process clause incorporates our common law backdrop of, of contract law and you can't depart from it by passing a state law. So I, I think that the real disagreement between us is not so much about positivism and not even so much about the, the nature of the general law, but is really about state law. 
is really about you know when has a state decided that it wants to stick with the general rule and when has it decided that it wants to go on its own? And my answer would be that's a question of state constitutional law. You know, it's a question of, you know, we can tell that Louisiana is on civil law and that New York isn't. And we can tell that, you know, the New York Constitution says that the uh, common law is, or the Massachusetts Constitution says the common law is still in effect and no statute has, has said anything to the contrary. And so the, the question really is when we get a bunch of state court decisions saying the law on this topic is X. And they don't explain whether they're striking out on their own and making a new house rule or whether they are trying but failing to apply a general principle. Then a federal court really has to work. But if the state courts are just saying, well, we read the common law as X, then and we think we're following the general principle, then it's totally okay for the federal court to say, you're just doing it wrong. You're trying to do something else. It's the same as if the, the state statute incorporated the law of Japan on a particular point. The federal court would say, like, we know the law of Japan at least as well as you do. Um, neither of us are experts in it. Both of us can try to find out what it is. And so when you look at cases like Erie, it would really matter whether the Pennsylvania trial courts are establishing a new local usage, whether they're saying, you know, whatever the general law is, the way we do it here in Pennsylvania is different. And if that's the message, then yeah, I agree with uh, agree with Ernie that that's what a federal court applying Pennsylvania law ought to do. The problem is that that's not what Erie tried. Erie said that we don't have to look at Pennsylvania state constitutional law. We don't have to ask this question because whatever the Pennsylvania state courts are doing is automatically the law of Pennsylvania. And I think that's wrong. And that is the inference that has gotten us into so much hot water that now we have Klaxon and now we have a whole bunch of successor cases that all say that basically there's no topic in which federal courts are able to pursue general law directly. So I want to pick up right there because one of the things that I find uh, difficult about your account is how anti-functionalist it is. And so it is clearly the case that the law of Pennsylvania, the, the decisions of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court are going to govern transactions between Pennsylvanians uh, when they're there, even if they're doing it wrong or whatever. The, the right wrongness here is a little bit confusing to me. But one of the things that has become a big subject in modern federalism is the degree to which the federal government can, quote, and Rick Hills's term, dissect the state. Can it decide sh that the governor or state legislature should decide certain things? And Erie stands as kind of the classic anti-dissecting the state move, because it says whatever the rule is that governs Pennsylvania is also governs interstate transactions um, or cases in diversity that come from Pennsylvania. And I wonder if as you move from a jurisprudential idea to a uh, kind of functional hat, like what would happen if Erie was reversed, whether the real effect of reversing Erie would be the empowerment of state legislatures vis-a-vis Oh, and federal courts, vis-a-vis -vis state courts. Um, state legislatures could, of course, enact more stuff if they so chose. Um, and that this isn't part of a broader effort to empower state legislatures vis-a-vis uh, -vis other parts of the state constitutional firmament. Um, uh, another example of something that is very anti-Erie-like is the independent state legislature doctrine that we've seen in kind of interpretations where we're kind of elevating the state legislature as the expositor of law and everyone else is kind of a faker. Um, and I, okay, so let me, let me do that. And then I want to ask something, I'll do a follow-up about whether with the kind of valence of that thing. So are you, are you attempting to dissect the state in your opposition to Erie? So I don't have any particular 
uh, brief for state legislatures as opposed to anybody else. It's more that a federal court, if they're being told thus and so is the law of Pennsylvania, needs to be sure that they're right. Um, you know, they don't always get to find out. And so if um, the Pennsylvania courts have gone one way, but you think the Pennsylvania legislature went another, um, you've got a state constitutional question before you. You know, what does the Constitution of Pennsylvania say? Do the state courts get to do all these various things? Now, maybe we should listen to the state courts when they're construing state law, you know, when they're telling us, well, this is really poker with an asterisk, or whether they're construing their state constitution. There might be limits to that. You think about cases like Bowie versus City of Columbia, where it's just, look, state court, you pretended to come up with this weirdo new procedural uh, bar, and we just don't believe you. We just think you're making it up. And surely there's some point at which we would say, we're no longer going to defer to you on the content of state law. That's not what Erie, that's not what, what Swift v. Tyson is doing. Okay, let me let me quickly follow up there because it's also not quite what federal courts were doing in the pre-Erie era. That federal courts would say things like uh, that the Michigan courts have interpreted the Michigan Constitution and they're just wrong about it. Um, that I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Or they, 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 the doctrine was not a modest effort at figuring out whether the, the state courts were uh, expositing a local rule or not, but a rather swaggering policy-oriented jurisprudence. And a lot of people have noted it, but like particularly in municipal debt cases, but also in tort cases, the, the federal courts went hog wild um, in imposing a different uh, kind of, and not finding would be a, would be a, a generous description of what they were doing in these cases. They were, I mean, they they, they wore their policy their, their policy beliefs on their sleeve. So why is it that we think the federal courts would be, are engaged in this modest effort that you suggest they are in if they were given their if they, if the shackles of Erie were taken off them? So my, my brief is for Swift, not for the corruption of Swift, just as uh, Ernie's brief is for Ernie and not the modern corruption of of Erie. So um, you know the the. Uh, if, By the way, there was a there was a great slip. Ernie's brief is for Ernie, not, <laughs> not no. Ernie's brief is for Ernie. Though you know, also for Ernie. And stuff. Um, so you know, if the um, you know, would there be you know, any doctrine you have? Courts can misapply in their own interests, um, and that's going to show up all over the place. Um, the question is whether this is the doctrine that they're actually legally required to apply or not. And if you have a case where you've got a local statute on point and that statute is constitutional and that statute is the sort of thing that general choice of law rules would tell you to apply in this kind of instance, then yeah, you do what, what Story said in Swift and you apply the local statute. Um, and if you have a Supreme Court decision from that state saying, look, we know lots of other states do different things, but our local house rule is this. Well, Swift said, you know, if you've got a local usage or custom on point, you go with it. The problem is when you say that all law, that, or sorry, every decision that the state Supreme Court makes just is the law of the state, and there's no looking past it. There's no sense in which the state Supreme Court is um, judging itself by some external standard. It, the, and I think that one of, the, one of the corruptions in the way that we look at the common law method today is we just sort of assume that the job of, say, the New York Court of Appeals is to make up some law for the state of New York, not to recognize the existence of local customs, which maybe other people will defer to because they know better than we do, but to sort of generate their own standards for what they think is best. 
And I think that that sort of message comes through loud and clear from Erie when we're no longer wondering what the bases are for the state court's decision and just interested in whether the state court decided that way or not. I don't know. I, th- I think this we might be doing something much more modest, which is simply saying that the state courts have the last word to settle the content of state law, just as the U.S. Supreme Court has the last word to settle the content of federal law. Right. I mean, I, I assume you would still agree that state courts have to follow the U.S. Supreme Court's view of federal law, that they're bound you know, by U.S. Supreme Court decisions construing federal statutes, for instance. Um, but I don't know why we wouldn't dissect the federal state in exactly the same way that you are, are dissecting the, the state state, if, if, if you're correct. Um, and it seems to me it is useful to have you know, one institution have the last word you know, on what you know, that jurisdiction's law means, at least for purposes of the interpretation of that law by other jurisdictions. So I think that the place I would find an exception, even in federal law, is when you're cross-referencing something else, something external. So if you had a federal statute that said, on this topic, we're going to adopt the law of Japan, and the federal courts have not said, that really means Japan asterisk, that really means some special thing that we know and nobody else does. If they're not saying that, if they just have a particular view on what the law of Japan is, then I don't see why a state court, which is also trying to apply that statute in the same way that the federal court is, should have to defer to their, you know, by assumption, mistaken reading of Japanese law. And I think the other way uh, goes too. the federal court defers to the state court to try and figure out what the statute says. But if we're trying to figure out what this third thing is that they're incorporating by reference, that's not something that the courts of the other jurisdiction are necessarily the last word on. And to the extent that we see the state as incorporating general law in precisely that way, then federal and state courts both get to weigh in on it. I think where we disagree is, is you know, number one, whether Erie binds us to any of this, right? I, I think you know, Erie is perfectly consistent with having a default rule that general law is what usually we're applying. Um, if, a, if a state wanted to announce that, for instance, or I think a, su- a successor decision to Erie could have said, we think ordinarily, just as an empirical matter, most states are still following the general law. So we'll do that. I think all Erie necessarily says is that if state law is different, then you have to follow it. Um, but I think the other thing is that the state courts may be interpreting their reception statutes, for instance, in their, in their state or their constitutional provisions to receive the common law and interpreting them to receive that law as state law, right? So that in a tort case, then you know, what we're interpreting is state law in a, in a case like Erie. And so I don't know why the why the state courts wouldn't have the last word on settling that. Now maybe maybe the state courts haven't. And I think that's just a that's you know we may just disagree about the content of of state law on these questions. I do have a question. Can I ask a question? Um, Because a lot of the areas where you're discontented with the lack of general law are places where it would come in federally, right? So personal jurisdiction, for instance, I mean, the state courts are interpreting their long arm statutes, presumably. Um, But the federal courts, if the question is what the federal court should make the rules and and the choice is between doing it under the due process clause or doing it under principles of general law. I mean, that seems like a different set of questions about the federal courts using general law to to govern themselves. Right. Does Erie necessarily even speak to that? So 
eerie the case may not, but certainly the principle of eerie, you know, capital T, P, and E certainly does. Um, there's a reason why Claxon came out the way it did. And it's not that, you know, they weren't just completely uh, on a frolic of their own. They thought that if we're going to follow Erie faithfully, that means that we can't have a general doctrine of choice of law, because that would mean that cases would come out differently in state and federal courts. And to my mind, um, you know, the, the personal jurisdiction cases, choice of law cases more generally, any of the sort of conflicts topics really are questions of general law. It's private international law. And in the absence of a authorized congressional statute, a federal court is first supposed to look to that general law to figure out if there are any state laws that apply. You know, is this one of those cases in which they apply, as the RDA puts it? Um, and if the answer is no, then you've got to fall back on general law because there's nothing else to use. I'm not sure why you couldn't have a different default rule for federal courts exercising their own jurisdiction. I mean, Congress could make one. Um, but the question is not just whether we could have one, it's whether we do and whether anyone has had with authority to do so has generated one. Um, in our system, you know, they get cases in law and equity and they would use ordinary rules of common law and equity and admiralty and so on if, to decide them unless the general rules of choice of law point to the law of the state to resolve a particular question, like whether this is a tort in New York or something like that. One admiralty they use federal law. Right. <laughs> All right, so this has been fascinating, but I'm I'm still back, you know, way, you know, at, at the beginning, try, trying to understand kind of at least what's jurisprudentially at stake. You know, Steve, I, I've always understood you to be kind of as a nostalgist for a pre-realist understanding of the law, and 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 you want to to get back there. Um, I mean, I you know, when I hear Ernie talk, it's it's much more compatible with my way of thinking to you know, conceptualize this kind of um, case as one about kind of who who has the last word or who who who's, who says they have the last word. And Erie would then be a case about giving state courts a lot more power um, than they'd, they'd had before with federal, you know, courts running amok, uh, as as David said. So, uh, I'm, I'm, first, I want to understand, Steve, how much turns on the credibility of something called general law for your position to get going? And then second, how do you establish it? You referred to, you know, games earlier. I read a bit into you, some of the articles you've written, and I began to think of you as like the whole on bout of legal scholarship. I, I think of you as someone who thinks there are these implicit rules. We're already following them. Uh, you use the example of language. You use like both the example of fashion and show that actually these are rule bound activities and the, the general laws just like the, the rules of the games we play and, you know, the fashion systems we follow. Is that your argument? Because it just seems to drop out the whole question that exercised the legal realists, which is that laws about power and it's about who wields it. And it's about not letting judges make stuff up to do so. So, you know, definitely the credibility of general law is pretty central to the project. If you don't think the general law exists, you're going to have a hard time. Uh, the, but I should say the federal courts are going to have a hard time with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the federal system is designed on the assumption that general law exists and can be identified and applied in, in various cases. 
And to be honest, I don't really see the attractions of a model in which law is really about power. I mean, sure, you know, things the, the power comes up in law as anywhere else. Um, but law is really about a system of instructions about how to act. And sometimes those are the those are the instructions that are powerful in a given instance, but sometimes not. There are plenty of places where entirely non-legal social custom is what's going to get you killed and not the law. Um, you know, the law says you have an absolute right to vote, but if you try and register, you're going to be murdered. You know, that is some, you know, there are all sorts of customs out there that regulate our behavior in lots of different ways. And that can be very important. And legal customs are just some of the ones that we add into the pile. And, you know, there can be areas of law that are customary in nature. And part of the way we recognize them is the fact that judges and lawyers sort of respond to them. But it's not as if the judges and lawyers are the ones creating them. Um, you know, the analogy that I give, you know, drawn from fashion is if, you know, they put something new on the cover of Vogue and then it becomes in. Um, that doesn't mean that Anna Winter has sort of legislative authority over fashion. Um, or if, you know, Will Ferrell and George W. Bush use the phrase strategery, it gets into the Oxford English Dictionary, but that's not one of the powers conferred on the president by Article 2. So there's a way of creating customs that's not just sort of enactment in the way that we think of for written law. Cerulean blue. Um, Cerulean blue gets big because, you know, sometimes you can successfully make fetch happen, but that's not because you are you're pre-authorized to make fetch happen in our system the way a legislature would be. I think I agree with all of that. And I think it means that um, the general law can be very positivist. It, it arises from social acceptance. And, but I think there has to be a decision in a, in, a, in a democracy. There has to be a decision by some democratically accountable actor that says, yes, we want to follow those customs. We want to make those customs the law. And that either has to be a statute that, for instance, adopts a restatement or adopts the Uniform Commercial Code and says, yes, the, the, this statement of kind of customary practice is going to be the law. Or it needs to be a delegation to a court. So there, there are such statutes. There are reception statutes all over the place. And yes. even in places without reception statutes, so there's a great martial opinion, Livingston versus Jefferson, which is a tort question. It's a trespass QCF question. And the, um, you know, what he says is, look, the common law is the law in all these states. The Louisiana had only just, you know, I think it was still a territory. Um, and, uh, you know, even if we didn't have the reception statute in Virginia, it would apply anyway. And the reason is because when we separated our connection with England, we didn't separate our connections with each other. Essentially, people who were married the day before the Declaration of Independence stayed married afterwards. People who owned property continued to own property. We didn't have a year zero where we just wiped the legal slate clean and invented everything new democratically. Any, any legal institutions that were in place continued in place, and we had a democratic process of legislation to alter them if we wanted to. But if we didn't alter them, they would just keep on trucking. And that, too, is a form of, of democracy, even though it's not all written democratically, because it doesn't give the legislature a moving target. It says to the legislature, here's where the law is right now, and you guys get to make all the changes. You guys get to say what you want to be different. Um, so I, I don't see it as anti-democratic in that way, because it gives the power to legislature, as opposed to, you know, Chief Justice Trainer. So I want to turn the function the, the questions a little bit back to Ernie's case. We've done a lot on Steve's case about um, about the jurisprudential nature of the claims here, but there's a whole other side to to, to Erie, which is like, was it forgetting whether it was right? Was it good? Um, and the case 
that people like Michael Grieva make uh, is that uh, the the uh, Swift regime, particularly the more aggressive uh, version it took, um, uh, was pretty essential for creating a common internal market. Um, that the federal courts did, played an important role in swatting down uh, beggar thy neighbor um, tort and contract law. That is particularly, for my interest, a, a really big deal in the law of municipal debt, which was, of course, the single biggest area in which um, the Supreme Court heard more cases involving municipal debt than it heard on of any other type in the second half of the uh, second half of the nineteenth century. And you take a case like Gelbke versus Dubuque, where the court on um, this, the Iowa Supreme Court had done something really objectionable. It had decided that local governments could issue debt to support railroads. Six years later, they reversed the same decision after a bunch of people had lent money to Iowa jurisdictions and then would leave them out in the cold. Um, and the Supreme Court issues an unbelievably aggressive Swift-style decision in order to preserve the internal municipal debt market. Um, uh, you can argue whether it's, I mean, you can talk about what this is a good idea, but the question is like, would do you agree with someone like Griva that the Swift, the aggressive version of Swift, was good for the creation of an internal market, playing the role of something like the European Commission does in Europe? Um, and then, secondly, would reversing Erie be good at addressing questions of bigger than neighbor policies today? So everything from uh, so many of them are statutory now, but like lawyer regulation and occupational licensing is often lawyer occupational licensing is often uh, done by uh, done by courts to some degree or another. Questions of like litigation hellholes, the that type of stuff. Um, what do you think of the case against Erie that doesn't stand on the grounds that Steve issues about its kind of essential rightness matter of law, but rather on functional grounds that Erie was just bad for the world? So I never thought I'd say this about my friend Michael Grieva, but I don't think he has enough faith in the market because Swift doesn't. Michael never impose, would think you'd say that either. So I know Swift doesn't impose the choice of law rule that says New York is going to follow the general commercial law. It recognizes that New York had already made that decision. And it had made that decision for very good reasons, which is that it wanted to be the leader of the American commercial world. It wanted to be the leader of the internal market. And every other state had decided to adopt the general commercial law for at least commercial contracts type of cases for exactly the same reasons, that they wanted to be part of that internal market. And I think those incentives are are still powerfully um operative today. They, they you know, operate as a curb on how crazy tort law can get. They operate as a very strong incentive to adopt the UCC, to adopt uniform laws. And, and there's a, you know, the, the Uniform Law Commission is very busy, right? And, and so I think those incentives are, are plenty strong um, without having the court just impose the general commercial law on everyone, whether the states want it or not. Um, Gelke's an outrageous decision, um, or, or well, it's responding to an outrageous decision. I think it's also an outrageous in its reasoning. Um, but I think you can get to much the same result if you think the result is sensible by saying that the state courts get to say what state law is, but they don't get to retroactively change it in ways that affect people's vested property rights. There are constraints on that. There's a contracts clause. There's a takings clause. And that raise, that imposes a limit on the sort of bait and switch that the Iowa courts tried to pull. And, and so I think you don't, you know, if you, if you reject 
swift and, and, and go with Erie. You don't have to accept that you have to let the Iowa court do what it did in Gilkey. Yeah, I mean, the, the court, I mean, you'd have to do something else. You'd have to reverse like decisions that interpret the contract clause in contract that don't apply to judicial decisions. But that's a separate thing. I want to turn the same question to Steve, but in the opposite way, which is, don't we already have a general common law in the sense that we in, in in huge numbers of areas because of the rise of arbitration and the mat and 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 settlement so that uh, St- uh sam zakharoff and uh florentia moretta wargler uh find that almost all important commercial contract cases are now decided by federal courts if they're decided by uh courts at all because without very little state guidance because of the nature of everything from the class action fairness, a variety of legal things that have resulted in um, federal courts kind of making decisions in common law areas while they, well, even if they nominally gesture towards state law. So do we need to reverse Erie um, other than to like settle your jurisprudential fight with, um, with, with Oliver Wendell Holmes? Is it important? So I would say yes. Because part of the reasons why so many of these cases wind up in arbitration and so many of them wind up in federal court through weirdo devices like Class Action Fairness Act is precisely because we have all these problems going on in state courts. So while I agree with Ernie that you didn't need, you know, the full on late 19th century sort of imposition of the of the general law over in the teeth of state statutes, one thing that kept the state statute somewhat more reasonable was the use of general law for choice of law principles. For example, you couldn't just grab a case, have jurisdiction, and then apply your own law to it basically whenever the Supreme Court would let you, which means basically any situation at all. Um, you could, And that meant that the law that you were going to be enforcing would have to have some greater connection to the actual dispute than uh, whatever you come up with later. Um, likewise, with personal jurisdiction, the fact that we abandoned um, you know, approaches to general law made it seem like this could, to the extent it exists at all, had to be a topic in due process. We generated a whole new field post-international shoe of what that would mean. And that meant that many different state courts got to weigh in than would have been the case previously. So one of the ways that state law, state statutes and state courts can go wrong is if we're not enforcing the constraints on them that the pre-Erie regime, even the, the good pre-Erie regime, the Swift era regime, would have enforced. And, um, you know, even if we respect state statutes, the the things the states will try get weirder. And that forces us to do stranger things in response, like, for example, have what might be too much arbitration and too many choice of forum clauses and choice of law clauses that we're perhaps too willing to enforce because we don't trust the ordinary course of litigation to solve them correctly. Yeah, I think the reason we have too much arbitration is litigation is too expensive in either set of courts. Right. And and I think most of the objections are to follow on cases. So the objection is to international shoe, which didn't have to come out that way. Um, You could have incorporated international law principles of jurisdiction into the due process clauses, what process was due. Right. Or or you could have made federal common law about the limits of the jurisdiction of the federal courts. Um, And the same thing with Claxon, I think. I've always been completely persuaded by Doug Laycock's treatment of Claxon that it would be an appropriate area for legislation by Congress. It would also be an appropriate area for federal common law to have federal choice of law rules. Um, If there's any legitimate area for federal common law, it would be that. So, you know, and 
reversing eerie to fix those things seems seems like an excessive thing because you get rid of this important separation of powers limit on the production of federal law, which is that ordinarily Congress has to make it. So I want to ask one last question before we have some closing statements, which is about the kind of politics of the revival of anti-Eriism. So again, as I noted, the traditional version of Erie is that like this is a step out of the darkness and into the light. And the uh, it's, not, it's, it's hard not to notice that it's not universally the case that the anti-Erie um, uh, sentiment in American law is coming from a more conservative bent. And this, you could tell a couple of stories about why that would be the case. One is the kind of uh, kind of general historical uh, embrace of natural law type concepts um, and general liking of things that are old that you sometimes see um, uh, among uh, among uh, among among conservatives. And another story is about the nature of state courts, state legislatures, and the federal courts. And so I hinted this earlier, but like state legislatures are notably uh, more Republican than any other institution in state government uh, because of the nature of districting. And it's a universal truth, um, are more likely to be governed by Republican. State courts are generally, although not universally, elected statewide, and there's a difference in the way that affects um, the likelihood of who wins. Federal courts these days have been uh, largely, I think, I mean, in depending on uh, conservative force in American political life for a little while, at least. Um, do you think the rise, not not your personal anti-Eriism or your personal pro-Eriism, which this confuses both of a little bit, but rather your description of like why this is popular these days is um, a, a political story, uh, kind of do people are just convinced of the rightness of the arguments or what? So I, I think this is really the, the spirit of reason sort of manifesting itself in the world over time. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think that the, um, you know, not all of the anti-Erie forces are conservative. I mean, look at, you know, Susanna Sherry was the one who called it the worst decision of all time. You know, and not me. I put other ones in front of that. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the, I think part of it is related to the revival of originalism. And uh, to some extent of textualism, because in order to do without Erie, you've got to read a bunch of texts in a very strange way. You've got to do a lot of stuff in, in, in order to, sorry, if you're going to do without general law, rather, you've got to read a bunch of texts in a very strange way. And the more that one reads a whole bunch of old, you know, martial era Supreme Court opinions and see people using general law right and left, the idea that sort of this is that it really was a step out of darkness into light is going to recede. If you're not telling that sort of modernist story that, you know, before we were confused about the existence of this, of this uh, brooding omnipresence, and now we have finally seen the, the realist truth. Um, you know, if, if that picture doesn't appeal to you, you're more inclined to go with a, a picture that rejects Siri. So I'm not ready to concede that Steve is more conservative than I am. Um, in fact, my, my complaint about Steve is I get my one conservative colleague, right, at my law school. And, you know, who does it turn out that I disagree most vehemently with about the things I care about most? Steve, right? He wants to ruin Erie, wants to ruin state sovereign immunity, wants to ruin standing. It's just terrible. Um, but I think, you know, we're both being conservative in our own way. We both like old things, right? Steve likes old general law. I like old federalism. And I, I think Erie is very consistent with the, the notion of, of federalism that goes back to the, the beginning. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I just don't think you can explain this in, in that 
particular way. Um, you know, there's there's the I guess the conservatism of the chamber of commerce, you know, that, that has it in for Erie. But that's that's a quite different kind, I think. Um, and certainly, you know, Steve's right. You know, there's plenty of, of good liberals who are gunning for for Erie, like Susanna. All right. So uh, we're now here for closing statements. Uh, uh, Steve went first in the uh, in the uh, first round. So we're going to say, Ernie, after this discussion, is Steve more wrong than ever? <laughs> Steve is not more wrong than ever. I always cringe when I disagree with Steve uh, just because I think he probably knows more than I, I do about most things. And so um, but I think our disagreement is actually quite narrow. I, I think our disagreement is really about how do we read a backdrop of state law? of state separation of powers laws. So I look to the state reception statutes. I look to the way that state courts have understood their role over time and articulated that role to others. Um, and, and I see that as you know, we are we have common lawmaking powers and, and that you know, affects the default rule. When we have a case in which there's no governing law, you know, it, it creates a default rule that the state court can make it. And when it makes it, it will make it as a matter of state law and the federal courts will be obliged to follow it. And I think Steve disagrees about the common law background. I think he thinks there's more states like um, Michael Green you know, described Georgia, that there are more states that are deliberately you know, willing to follow more general principles and that that should be the default rule. But if for either of our visions of Erie, I think it's simply a default. Any of these actors can can alter the default by statute and say, no, this is what we want to do. This is what we want our courts to do. And if the states do that, the federal courts will be obliged to to follow it. So I, I just don't see this as, as that broad a gulf at all. Now, he's really wrong about some other stuff, but maybe maybe we'll be invited back um, for that. So, Steve, do you agree? Not a big gulf. Erie, pretty good overall. Uh, I, I would say that Erie should be um, utterly destroyed, the site sown with salt and Ichabod <laughs> written over its gates. Um, the, uh, I, and you know, whether that means ultimately that somebody who claims to have you know, been hit by a train while walking across the Pennsylvania railroad tracks wins or loses is not really something that I care much about. What I care much more about is what everyone understood the eerie decision to have done with the capital letters. Um, it is, you know, the, the view that state courts are necessarily exercising this sort of affirmative common law making power which I think is in the first place, a question of state constitutional law. And in the second place, maybe even a question of due process. I'm not totally sure that it's okay for a state post hoc to impose, if it can't make ex post facto laws, to explicitly revise its pre-existing law vis-a-vis um, -vis a transaction already concluded. But even beyond that, um, what it's really done the most damage to is how federal courts see their job as, as being both in federal common law cases, so-called, and in other kinds of federal constitutional and federal structural cases where we have to derive all these inferences from text and structure and can't just say, look, that was the old general law rule and nothing's changed and nothing's been amended in it. And so it keeps on trucking. I think that if people were willing to make that kind of inference more often, I wouldn't care so much about what to do about railroads in Pennsylvania. 
as someone who cares deeply about railroads in Pennsylvania and a little less about the federal courts, uh, uh, I want to thank you both. Um, thank you both so much for this. This is wonderful. Um, and uh, and I, I hope that this gets adopted in uh, everyone's civil procedure classes. So uh, from 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 your mouths to uh, to everyone, every to every hip young professor teaching civil procedures ears, uh, um, we want to say thanks. Thank you. And uh, and then good night and good luck. Thank you. Thanks.